with that, I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges this morning. Uh, to the book of Judges, uh, we're in uh, the second part of our uh, series that we've entitled uh, Samson, the Flawed Fighter, looking at the life and, and times of Samson. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find it on page 214. also want to encourage you to grab your bulletin insert to follow along and fill in uh, some notes as we continue to move forward in our uh, time of study together. Also, um, would also encourage you to stop by the Welcome Center, our website. There are study guides for each of these weeks in the uh, b- uh, book of Judges and the life of Samson. I would encourage you to be a part of that as well. We've done that so that you can glean and, and apply even greater truths than just the sermon alone. And so you can get that again in written form at the Welcome Center or uh, online uh, on our website, villagebible.org. Um, And so if you weren't with us last week, we started this series on Samson. We didn't talk about Samson at all. We talked about his dad, Manoah, and his unnamed mom. And uh, we learned that they were faithful and and godly people. And uh, what we're going to do is as we turn from Judges 13 to Judges 14, there seemingly is a large passage of time that takes place. Uh, uh, Samson uh, has gone from being a child that's promised to his mom and dad to now being a son who is looking for a wife. And Uh, He either is in his late teenage years or his early 20s, uh, depending on when he would have done this. But Samson is a young man, and we're going to learn about Samson. Our first glimpse of Samson is not very good. The first impression we get of Samson is not a good one. And while God had blessed Samson with strength and great parents and a spirit that was stirring within him at the end of Judges 13, we're going to see that Samson is heading down the road of disobedience. He, like so many of us throughout our lives, is going the way of the wayward. And that's going to be my heading this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look through the reading of this passage of Scripture. We're going to see some checkpoints. There are some signs, some warning signs to Samson that the route that he has taken, the way that he is going, is a way that's going to bring great trial and tribulation into his life. And, and hopefully, though Samson doesn't see them, hopefully you and I will see them. And sometimes that's what we need. We need to look at someone else's life and see the inherent danger and in some of the bad decisions that are being made and then apply that to our lives. And so we're going to do that this morning. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? As we look at Judges 14... It's a long passage of Scripture, but as I shared with you before, it reads like a Hollywood storyline. There's a lot of incredible things that are going on. What seemingly starts out so good will end in such terrible tragedy, and yet there is so much we can glean from God's Word in this passage. So let's go along. I will stop at some different times just to make some Uh, references in the reading of the scripture, so follow along as I read from the ESV. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. 
And behold, the young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside, he took a detour, that is, to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother, and he gave them some of the honey, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down. I just noticed for the sake of commentary here, notice the phrase that the writer uses, went down, went down. Well, that is geographical. Also recognize, I think there's some spiritual um, consequences to that. These decisions that Samson's making in this text are going downward. So he goes downward to the woman and to Samson to prepare a feast, for that was what young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me put now a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast... And find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. He's going to give them suits out of the deal. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day... They said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told them what it is. And he said to them, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city came to Samson on the seventh day before the sun went down and gave the answer. What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? Now here's where we know that Samson had superhuman strength. Because he replies about his wife, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoils, gave the garments to those who had been told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Father God, bless the reading of your word, the hearing of it, the application of it. Lord, bless your people as we spend some time gleaning the truths from your word. Now speak through me, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot going on in this passage, and I'm going to uh, try to apply very practical truths from this passage. You see, when we look to this chapter of Scripture, we look and we say, Samson, you should have known better. When I wrote those words down in my notes, those words reverberated in my memory and in my ears of what I used to hear as a young, a young man, as a young kid, 
Tim, you, you should have known better. You see, like Samson, I too had a wonderful pedigree. I had great parents and a, and a wonderful church and a great youth group and wonderful role models and mentors. And yet I would make mistake upon mistake, decision upon decision that, that people would respond, Tim, you should have known better. And that is true of many of us today. The Bible makes it clear that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been um, blessed with every spiritual blessing under heaven. God has given us his word. He's empowered us by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Christ has gone to the cross and died on our behalf that we no longer stand guilty before the throne of God. He's given us his word, the local church. He has given us a country in which we can study and glean the truths of this scripture. And yet for many this week, we have gone the way of Samson and the way of the wayward and the way of disobedience And your pastor stands not as one in condemnation, but one who struggles with this as well as you do. We should know better. We should know that the way of sin leads to destruction. We should know that when we pursue the life of sin and debauchery and the life of of selfishness, that nothing good comes from it. We know what the Bible says in the book of Galatians, that God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You're going to see in one chapter of Scripture today that when you sow to the flesh, you will reap a harvest of unrighteousness and pain. And what God in his grace is reminding us of is to stop living the way that we do, hell-bent on doing what we want to do, and instead, because of the example that we have, the bad example that Samson gives us, is a reminder that when we live to sin, only destruction will come our way. So I want you to notice this morning that there are some signs that we have. While Samson had everything going for him, while he had been told on his father's knee the chosen man that he was, Samson blows it, and we do as well. And I want you to see five things from our text this morning that remind us of the road that leads to waywardness and how many of us may find ourselves on it this morning. You see, we got to be careful. The Bible is abundantly clear that we as followers of Jesus Christ can destroy our lives because of sin. That we can make decisions this week that will have ramifications that will live uh, for the rest of our entire lives. Just go through some of the great men and women of the faith just to highlight some of them. Uh, Noah, after building God's ark and being faithful and seeing to it that all of the animals are on the ark and enduring the great flood, Samson gets drunk and becomes perverted and uh, finds himself in a place of great sin. How about Abraham, a man who was promised great things of God, that he would be a father of many nations, a father of many descendants? Well, it doesn't happen. And him and his wife are getting older and older, and so he makes a decision that uh, with the help of of, uh, the advice of his wife, he'll take upon himself a maidservant, and that is how he will then uh, be the father of many nations. And that decision to sleep with Hagar is a decision that would have ramifications in Abraham life and in the life of human history as well. How about Lot? He picks a property of land that's close to Sodom. And as a result, little by little, Lot finds himself being um, indwelt with a group of people um, or dwelling amongst a group of people who are sinners to the core. And before he knows it, he finds himself dwelling in a sinful place 
where he has to flee for his life with his two daughters and his wife, and he would lose his wife who turns back to look at the destruction of the place they once lived. Jacob and Esau, Moses, who kills a man thinking he's liberating the nation of Israel from Egypt. How about Saul, who started out so well and ended so badly? How about David, a man after God's own heart, who made one decision out of passion and then had to kill uh, that passionate, uh, uh, that, that woman that he was passionate about, had to kill uh, her husband? How about Solomon, the great man of wisdom, who took upon himself many wives and concubines, And while he had the wisdom of God failed in some major ways, it doesn't take us long to see that good, godly men and women can make very, very bad decisions. Only a couple weeks ago, in one of the largest churches in the United States, a a good Bible-teaching church, a a church that its pastor was known throughout the nation and the world, would have a congregational meeting one Sunday night to announce that their pastor, the founding pastor of their church of almost 30,000 people, had to step away and be let go from ministry because of multiple occurrences of affairs in his life. At the age of 55, this man loses all of his ministry, trying to put together his marriage, trying to put together his testimony, all because of some bad decisions. And here's the thing. You and I encounter these decisions every day. And the question this morning is, what are we going to do with them? Well, I want to help us this morning through the teaching of God's Word to see five areas we need to take notice and be aware of and beware of, okay? Because Peter reminds us we are to arm ourselves. We are to be ready for the fight and not fall to the issues of sin. And so we need to notice the sins that come, if you will. My first point this morning, on sin's road. On sin's road. What did Samson do? What caused him the pain and sorrow that he receives at the end of the chapter? There are five of them this morning. Now I want you to be excited. There are only two points. Two points. So this will be a short one. Uh huh. So there are two points we're going to address this morning. I want you to notice that some of the things that come on sin's road, be careful, listener, when your desires come first. When your desires come first. Notice in verses 1 through 3, and I'm not going to read through all of this again. We've heard the story. But notice Samson is at a time where he's looking for a bride. And he comes and he says that he had just visited Timnah, which wasn't far from his birthplace, And he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of these daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. And his parents have a problem with that. Can't you find someone, they say, among your daughters or your relatives or or among your people that you'd have to take a wife from the Philistines? And he says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Let's stop there for a moment. The first warning that we need to be careful of when we're walking down the road of sin is when our desires become number one. I want you to notice twice in the text, it says that he saw her, and in verse 3, that she was right in his eyes. I want you to notice that this is not a picture of wholesome care and affection for the woman. He is not falling in love with her. No, this is lust at first sight, not love at first sight. How can this woman do me well? Now, at no point is he thinking about what I, as her future husband, can do for her. No, she's got his motor running, 
and he knows what he wants, and he's going to get it. Now notice the, the book of John, 1 John tells us that what Samson is struggling with is the lust of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes does not come from God, it comes from the world. And what he's lusting after is something that he sees that seemingly will bring him pleasure, seemingly bring him good fortune, and he wants it. Now the lust of the eyes isn't always sensual or sexual. It can be for people, it can be for possessions, it can be for prestige or, or some sort of prominence. But in this case, he looks at a woman, he sees her, he likes what he sees, and so what does he do? Notice, he's very disrespectful to his parents. Now get her for me as my wife. There are three things I want you to see. So while there are only two points this morning, there's 157 subpoints. The first subpoint. <clears throat> is be careful when your desires get the best of you. Well, how do you know if they're getting the best of you? When instant gratification is the all-important thing. When instant gratification because the all-important thing. Let me explain. Notice in the text, he says, now. Beware, listener, when you are so hell-bent on getting something that you start saying things like, I will die without it. I was 17 or 18 years of age when I had saved up enough money, about $2,500, to go buy a car. This was my money, hard-earned or given to me. I don't know what it was, but it was $2,500. It was mine to be spent. And I told my dad, it's time for me to go buy a car. And that money was burning in my pocket. I couldn't spend that money quick enough. And I remember the first car that I saw at the dealership was a car that did not look right. It did not sound right. It did not drive right. There was nothing right about the car. But I had to have it. And I told my dad and the salesman sitting in the chair, I'll do anything for this car. To which my dad got up and said, thank you, sir, for your time. We're leaving. To which he said, if you ever say that again, I'll never go book car shopping with you. You see, I wanted a car. I didn't care what the car looked like. I didn't care what the car sounded like. I don't care if it was a good deal. I just wanted the car. Samson wanted a woman. And he didn't care anything really about it. He just knew that that woman was going to bring him pleasure. It was going to bring him uh, fulfillment. And it had nothing to do with her. It had all to do with him. Now I want you to notice this morning that there's nothing wrong with wanting a car or a house or any real possession that that is in God's creation. There's nothing wrong with wanting a spouse. There's nothing inherently wrong with what Samson is asking. But he is asking it, and he's wanting it on demand. There's a selfishness to him. Beware that when you go to a place where you say that you can't live one moment without this void being fulfilled. There are young people in our midst who are saying that if that certain someone doesn't say yes to the dance, I'll, I don't know what I'll do. Or if that school turns me down, then my life is, is a mess and a wreck. We need to be careful when we put noble and right desires 
up and that we got to have those things now. Now, I want you to notice that it then translates to something else. Be careful with your desires when they become demands. Twice in the text, he says, get her for me. And then the scripture says that he told his parents to do something. He told them, can, can I tell you something? Growing up, I didn't tell my parents to do anything. And when I did ever think about telling my parents to do something, my dad would knock me into next week. Okay? In our context, by the way, what I mean by that is he made me have a timeout. Okay? I didn't have timeouts in Baghdad where my dad's from. Okay? But what he's doing, Samson is doing here, is he's demanding something of his mom and dad. Now here's the thing. There was demanding that was to be done in a uh, home of an Old Testament Israelite. Here's the problem. It had been flip-flopped. Mom and dad did the demanding. I want you to notice that the kind of communication that um, Samson has with his parents is mimicked by the son, the prodigal son in the story in the New Testament. The demanding of a son to a father, do this, I'm the one in charge, I'm the one who is going to get his way, and you need to understand something. That is not the way that it went in those days. And Samson is demanding, he's flexing his muscles. He's saying to his mom and dad who were to arrange the marriage, you're too stupid to know who I'm supposed to get. You're too naive and dumb to know who is best for me. I will tell you who is right. I will tell you who looks good in my eyes. You go get them and you do what I say. Well, how do we do that today? Maybe you demand, and I know some of us do, but we whimper and we whine. We make people's lives miserable. So they will help us in our pursuit of the thing that we want, whatever it is, a spouse, a position, a certain possession. But notice the third thing that we see of desires that go bad. Be careful when your desires for things or people are creation, where you view them as creations of your pleasure or fulfillment. The text tells us that When Samson sees this woman, he says twice, she is right in my eyes. Now, commentators say that what he's saying is she's beautiful. She's hot. I I think she's a knockout, okay? And, And I don't need to go any farther to what a young guy can think about a knockout woman, uh, But he's sitting there thinking all about himself, never about relationship, but about gratification. He's thinking about his earthly and and sensual desires, and he's saying, hey, I like her. She can do well for me, and and so I'm going to bring her into my life to fulfill my every whim, my every desire. There's no common affection. There's no pursuit by Samson on how he might serve her or honor her. It's all about him. It's all about his desires and his wants. And I'm here to tell you that some of us today are exactly in the same spot. Now, it may not be with a person. Maybe it's not an engagement to a spouse, but there's no question that we allow the desires of other people or positions or prominence to tempt us to do things that we shouldn't. Now here's the rub. Here's what Samson has been called to. Remember, Samson has been since birth told that he was to serve and honor God, that God's plans for him were to be numero uno in his life. 
Now, what does Samson do? Samson makes a decision. I don't want to follow those ways. I'm going to do it my own way. And what I want you to understand this morning is that when you say no to obeying God and say yes to obeying your own earthly desires and wants, what you are doing is putting yourself in competition with God. God has called us to obey him. God has called us to follow his ways. God has called Samson to fulfill God's purposes for him and Samson says, hey, no, God, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to pursue my thoughts, my desires, my wants. I'm going to pursue them for me. Now here, let me tell you something. You will never fulfill God's calling in your life if you're pursuing your own wants and desires. And let me explain. You will never worship God in the way that he calls you to if you're worshiping on the altar of self. You're never going to serve God as he's called you to in humility if you're serving yourself first. You will never give to the Lord of your tithes and offerings because that is in too much competition. You need to give that money to the things that you want in your life. And so we need to be very careful. What Samson is doing is saying, I'm God, and I'm going to do what I want, and God, you're going to get seconds out of this deal Because my prerogatives, my desires come first. And I want you to understand, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't have a choice in the matter. It's God. He's number one. So we see Samson heading down this wrong road. His desires are getting the best of him. And right now, some of us are allowing our desires to get the best of us. Will we stop and take heed and the warning? Or will we continue to go down the road? Now, here's the thing. Samson also dismisses good godly counsel. If only had Samson had someone to listen to. If only Samson had someone to speak some sense into him. Even the greatest and best of the leaders of our world have lapses in judgment. Even godly men and women make mistakes. And only if God would have given him someone to show him the way before it's too late, Samson may have done that. Well, wait a minute. Look at the text. He does. God is gracious. Notice verse 3. But his father and his mother said to them, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the other peoples that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Man, how good is it when you're being a bonehead that God would give you someone who would say, Hey, turn around, fix this, you're going the wrong way, that would say, hey, ahead of you, bridge out, you know, detour now, you know, get off that path. I think of another time, another instance where a good godly man was making a very bad decision. We have to only go a couple books farther into the Old Testament to be reminded of David, a man after God's own heart, who some evening saw a woman bathing, and he he lusts after her, and he wants her, And then he says he makes inquiry of her, the text tells us. And one of his advisors says, King, don't you know this is Uriah the Hittite's wife? Let me help you understand what the Hebrew is saying there. With all due respect, King, don't do this stupid thing. Let me help you. Let me remind you, she's a married woman. You could have any single woman you want in all of Israel as a king. Don't take someone else's wife. This guy is your faithful leader in your military. Don't do this thing. That's what his parents are doing here in in the book of Judges. What they're clearly showing Samson is wise and godly teaching. 
Now, this will date me a little bit, but I used to watch a show as a kid. They were the reruns, by the way, of a show called Lost in Space. Some of you remember those shows because you're old. But... um, but we used to watch this, and it was a story of a family and, 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 and astronauts that were lost in space on some far-off uh, place, and they had a robot with them. And the robot and, and the young boy who was with the family had a companionship, and, and this robot had a sensing ability of when danger was coming. It was my favorite part, because at times when little Will Robinson and the robot were out and about, the, the, the robot would go berserk and start yelling, danger, Will Robinson, danger. You guys remember that. You're old enough to remember that. And what we need when we make bad decisions is the scripture or some godly individual to come into our life and... and, and start saying danger ahead. These people knew. These parents knew their son. They knew his mission. They knew the commitment that they had made to the Lord. And they say to their son, their adult son, I might add, you're making a bad decision. But I want you to notice, parents, how they deal with this. And and I'm going to speculate for a little moment if you will allow me that opportunity. I want you to notice within the text that there is nothing in the text that paints a picture that mom and dad become hysterical with their son. What that means is they don't, because of the bad decision that their son is making, go off the deep end, but that they have a rational response. They respond, can't you find someone within our own lineage, our own kinsmanship, if you will, our own country, to find a wife? Number two, when an adult child makes a bad decision. I want you to notice that as Samson makes this bad decision, there's nowhere in the text that says that they banished him from the home, that they kicked him out of their lives. In fact, it says that they in some ways went along with the decision and the direction of his life and gave some level of support even though they disapproved of what their son was doing. That's important for us to remember. That as parents, we, we may disapprove of what our children are doing, but, but it doesn't say that we should then just totally, uh, if you will, disown them, but that we let them do what they are going to do without advocating it or approving of it. Number three, when their son, who is an adult, was making a bad decision, Instead of speaking to them with their own words, they spoke the truth of Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 6. Don't intermarry with a pagan people. And so what that meant was it became less mom and dad versus the kid and more about obedience versus disobedience to God. What a great model for us as parents to remember. Now, within that, there's some practical truths that I want to speak to. First of all, I want to talk to kids, and I want to remind you, parents, that when I say these things, every part of your being is going to want to amen vocally what I say. But before you do, understand that I've got some words for you that your kids will want to amen. So the first thing, kids or young people who are in here, okay? I want to make it abundantly clear to you from this story the utter foolishness it is to circumvent your parents when it comes to big decisions in your life. What I mean by that is if you want to play the part of a moron, don't listen to what mom and dad say. 
Now, they haven't paid me to say this. This is what I've learned as being a kid myself and now growing up into an adult. Now, one of the trends that I see on TV, especially in some of the shows that my children watch that are geared to young people and young children, is the trend of TV making parents look like buffoons. The dad can't put two things together to save his life. The mom is out doing that, that, this, that, and the other thing. And none of them, they're all asleep at the wheel. None of them are doing what they're supposed to. But let me tell you what the Bible says, not what Hollywood says about parents. The reason why you have parents is simple. Listen, young people, if you live in your parents' house, you need to listen to what I'm saying. You have been given parents, listen, because you are too ignorant and naive to live life alone without them. Okay? I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm saying that as a kid, you have not figured it all out. And God in his grace says, I'm not going to leave you alone because that would be disastrous I'm going to give you two people that are going to come to know you from birth and walk with you every step of the way so that when you're about to make a bonehead decision, your mom and dad are going to say, danger, son, danger, daughter, don't do this bad thing. So whether you want to believe it or not, your parents are a gift to you by God himself. And when should you most use them? When major decisions come. For Samson, it was picking of a spouse. I've said this before, parents know their kids more than their kids know themselves many times. And they can be of great help in the process of dating and courtship and marriage. And so kids, listen to your parents. Young person, listen to your parents. They're not perfect. They are going to make mistakes But God has given them to you so that they can help you navigate through life. Now, right away, parents are like, yeah, Tim's giving it to Junior. I love it. But let me remind you, parents, that just as I have shared that with your kids, that parents, your kids may not come to you. They may not seek your wisdom or advice, not because they don't want to, but because it may be unwise for them to do so. You see, just like parents know their kids, kids know their parents better than most people do. And your kids have seen how you live. They've seen how you follow Jesus. They've seen how you work, how you manage your money, how you uh, deal with your marriage. And they may be sitting back saying, the last person I want to talk to right now is my mom and dad because they're an abject failure at the very things that I want wisdom and insight on. I ain't going to them. I will tell you that as a parent now of young boys, I've been sharing a truth with them, building and investing in them, something that I would encourage all of us as parents to do. I've been telling, especially my two oldest sons right now, that my goal in their lives is to prove to them that I can be totally trustworthy and dependable in all areas of their life. 
that when they see their dad, they see a dad who is not perfect, but a dad who desires nothing more than to be of the greatest resource to my sons, that they can come to me at any hour of the day with any issue, and that I will be able to help them, that they will know they have got me in their corner, and I want to prove myself faithful to that end. That when my parents talk to to you or the outside world, they say, I am so thankful that I have a mom and a dad who I can depend on when it's good and depend on them when it's bad. Where did I learn that? That's the kind of mom and dad I had. The kind of mom and dad that they were anchors in my time of storm who would point me back to Jesus all the time. That means father, that means mother, you better study to know yourself approved unto God. You better be men and women of the word, men and women of prayer, men and women of holiness. Your kids are watching and they're looking for answers and they'll look to the world before they'll come to you because all they see in you might be the world. And so parents and kids, God's brought us together to work together so that we don't make the decisions and mistakes that Samson did. Notice next, we need to continue to move along here. Be careful, you may be on the wrong track when you start dabbling with sin. In verses 5 through 7, we got Samson going down to the first celebration with his wife soon-to-be wife. He heads down with mom and dad, which was the custom at that time. Uh, Men would go and throw parties for their soon-to-be brides and and their family and friends, and, and they're making their way down to Timnah, her hometown. And it seems as if Samson makes a detour. We know that he's not with mom and dad because they're unaware of what happens, and notice where Samson goes. It says in uh, verse uh, 5, that he came to the vineyards of Timnah. That's wonderful. I mean, who doesn't like Napa Valley? The beautiful vineyards, the grapes that are hanging across the trellises. I mean, the scenery, the aroma, the beauty. So Samson detours for a moment just to go hang out in the vineyards. And what a wonderful, what a a great time to visit the beautiful landscapes of God's creation. But here's the problem. Danger, Samson. Aren't you a Nazarite? Aren't you to stay away from the fruits of the vine? Well, where do the fruits of the vine come from? They don't come from Walmart. They come from the vine. And where are vines found? In vineyards. And here we have Samson. Now, let's give Samson the benefit of the doubt. Let's say he didn't touch any of it. That he was just there for the scenery. Can I tell you, even if that's the case, it's dangerous. And it goes against the heart of what God had for his chosen man of the hour. God says, I don't want you around that stuff. And Samson says, I'll just hang around. I'll just look around. Maybe he drank. Maybe he doesn't. I'm not going to condemn him of that because it doesn't say. It just says he's hanging around. And can I add this morning that some of us as followers of Jesus Christ are hanging around the bad stuff without partaking in it? We want to see how close we can get to hanging around to getting some of the peaks on the action. We position ourselves to catch the smells. We, we loiter around enough of the crowd uh, so that we can say that we were there. At the minimum, Samson is testing his willpower. At the maximum, Samson is totally disobeying the core of God's commands. So he's in the wrong place 
And then what happens when we're always in the wrong place? Something bad happens. A lion comes out. Now, we're not sure why this lion comes out, but it comes out, and and Samson uses his strength to rip from limb to limb this animal. Now, it doesn't say, and commentators differ on this, many commentators say it's not out of protection that Samson does this, but it's out of him having fun. It's sport. He knows the strength that God has given him, and he knows that he's to use this strength to bring down the Philistines, but he wants to have some fun, so let's kill a lion out of it. Let's just let's have some fun with it. And he rips the lion from limb to limb. Now, how do I know that what Samson is doing is wrong? Notice that when we dabble with sin, we dabble fully aware that we shouldn't be doing it. How do we know that? Notice the next thing that Samson does is he deceives others about who the real, he, real Samson is. And we do that when we deceive others about the real you. Notice in the text, he, he's gone to the vineyard, and he's killed a lion. Let me tell you something. If a lion came upon me and I ripped it from limb to limb, to limb you better believe mom and dad are the first call I'm making. You're not going to believe it. This big lion, and the lion was this big, okay? And it'll keep getting bigger as the story goes on. And I killed it. But notice the text says twice that the text tells us in verse 9, and then later it says um, in verse 9 and verse 6 and verse 9, he does not tell his father or mother what he's done. Why? Because he knows what he's done is wrong. He knows as a Nazarite he's not supposed to be in the vineyard. He knows that he's not to be around that kind of stuff. And instead of telling him of his exploits, of ripping a lion from limb to limb, he just tells him another story. Be careful, Christian, when you're dabbling with sin and you know full well what you are doing and you deceive others by lying to them. So here's the fundamental question this morning that each of us must ask. Do the people that are closest to us know who the real you is? Do they know what you're looking at, what you're watching, what you're reading? Do they know what thoughts are going on in their head? If you were to pull back the curtain into your life, would people be shocked by what they see? Or have you done a good job of deceiving them? I was once watching a, um, a documentary on the company of Google. And one of the questions that the CNBC reporter asked was, you have such incredible information, the, the national secrets that Google has on its mainframes because of emails and all of that, could destroy kingdoms, to which the Google CEO said, that's not the information we're most worried about. What we're worried about is the impact that it has on people's relationships with one another. And if we, for one day, he said, our, uh, our company is one of the most powerful in the world because if one day we allowed the search site, or the search engine um, uh, Log history logs of our users to be given out, marriages would fall apart. Families would come to a wreck. And he says, the absolute secrecy of what people do on the internet 
would change the facet of relationships for all time. Why? Because we do things in secret and we hide them from the people that know us best. Samson keeps quiet. And some of us are going down that road that the real you isn't known by anybody. But let me tell you, let me remind you, God knows the real you. God knows where you are, who you are, what you read, what you watch, what you think, what you desire. God knows all of those things. And you're just deceiving everybody. And you may win that battle. But there's a day of judgment that will come where everything will be laid bare. Notice Samson takes it even farther. And he dares to make sin a game. So we get to the point where Samson finds himself uh, with his uh, soon-to-be wife and and the companions. They've brought 30 companions to to be with Samson. And Samson goes to those 30 guys and he says, i got to deal with you. I'm going to buy you guys all new suits if you can get this riddle. And the riddle, notice, is in the text, and, and it's there in verse 14. Out of the eater came something, something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Samson's going to win a whole bunch of new Versace suits. He's excited. And what is Samson bringing about with the riddle? Samson is making joke of his sin. The essence of what Samson is asking is, do you know where I've been and what I've done? And so Samson, who should, who's deceiving his parents by not telling them what he's done because he knows he shouldn't be doing it, is now carousing with the world, the Philistines, and he's making sport of it. Hey, you guys won't believe what I've done. You won't believe it, and, and I'm going to gamble with you that you'll never figure this out. Now here's a man who had been set apart from the Lord not to eat from the fruit of the vine and and he's hanging around, strike one. He's not to be around dead and corrupted bodies of animals or human beings, and we know in the text, which we'll get to in a moment, that he goes back to that rotting dead carcass of the lion, and he scoops food out of it. Strike two. He's to vanquish the Philistines, and now he's carousing with them, and instead of raising up an army to rebel against them, he's giving them riddles. His sinful disobedience has now led him to make a joke of his sin. Some of us are making a joke of our sin because we don't really believe that it is true that God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We think we're getting away with it. We think we've got everybody deceived. We think we can make sport of disobedience to God. And Samson is going to learn the hard way. You don't mess with God. You do not walk the way of the wayward and live the wonderful life. It'll catch up to you. And notice my second point, the sad results. What transpires is absolutely tragic and heartbreaking for Samson. A man who thought he knew what was best for him, what was right in his eyes, is going to see his world unravel. And how does it do so? I want you to notice that when we give ourselves to sin, three things happen. Number one, sin has a way of defiling others along with you. So I want you to understand that Samson has, in essence, ruined his own life because of sin. And he's ruined the life of his parents. These parents who have been godly people 
who have been teaching their son the promises of God as he sat on their knee, as he told, them, told Samson the great things that Samson was going to do through the power of God in his life. And now his parents are worried about the disappointment in the decision of marrying a Philistine woman. The fighting over their conscience, how do we support our son and not enable him? And they're defiled all over the place. Then they're defiled. Notice in the text that it says that Samson is turned again to the carcass of the lion in the vineyard. He sees a swarm of bees, and in the body of the lion he sees honey. He scrapes it, which defiles him, by the way, touching a dead body of a rotting carcass. And he takes it, and he eats it, and notice what he says, and he gives his parents some of it as well, and they ate. He defiles them as well. I want you to know something that I've come to learn as a pastor that that is very helpful for me. When I am tempted to sin, and I'm not perfect in this in any stretch of the imagination, I think I'm getting better at at it as time goes, but when I'm tempted with sin, this is what I do, and hopefully this will be a blessing to you as well. I run through the ripple effect of what that sin will do if I'm caught. And so I right away then begin to do spiritual inventory. What will this decision mean with my relationship with God? What will Amanda say about this decision? Will she be okay with it? Will it ruin my relationship with her? What will my boys say? What will my extended family, what will my parents, my in-laws, my brothers and sisters-in-laws, what, what will they say? What will this do to my ministry? What will this decision do to my walk and my testimony amongst unbelievers in my community? What will this do... Um, to the world around me. And if I can say after all of that that all is going to be good in that, then I can fall headlong into it. Here's the problem. By the time I get to second or third thing, usually it's right about when I get to Amanda, I find out I'll be dead. Okay? And what happens? I say it ain't worth it. And some of us need to start doing a spiritual checklist, the ripple effect of what sin does, because sin has a way of defiling Not only ourselves, and we're willing sometimes to pay that price, but are we willing to defile others around us? And some of us have defiled our parents. Some of us have defiled our children. Some of us have defiled our testimony and our relationship with God. Some of us have defiled our testimony to the outside world. Why? Because we chose to say yes to temptation and sin instead of turning away from it. Sin has a way of defiling others. Number two, Sin has a way of destroying your dreams. Notice Samson knows exactly what he wants. He's found the woman. She's right for him. She looks good. And man, the honeymoon is going to be sweet. He's got it all figured out. And he goes down the road of sin. And notice what happens around the time of the honeymoon. His wife is a wreck. For seven days, she nags him. Don't you love me? Won't you tell me the secret? Won't you tell me the riddle? Won't you? You hate me. You hate my parents. You hate, and on and on. This woman no longer is attractive to him in any way because he's dri- she's driving him insane. 
The dream of a wonderful honeymoon has now been cast aside because he's got a nagging, persistent wife who presses him to the point that he is absolutely out of his mind that he gives her the answer to the riddle. And he says, you know what, fine. I I can't deal with this incessant nagging. Here it is. So he loses the bet. And he buys them the, the, the clothes that he said he was going to. But then his anger fills up. And he goes and he kills 30 men as a result of it. And while he's killing those 30 men, you know what happens? Notice the last verse of the text. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Talk about shattered dreams. The woman of your dreams is given to your best buddy, your best man, and you don't get to have her now. Can I tell you, you may have dreams, but when you give your life to sin, those dreams are as good as gone. They're going to fall apart. Now here's the last thing I want you to see. Sin can derail your plans. They did for Samson. Everything that he had planned, everything that he had purposed in his life, he knew what was going to happen. But here's the thing, it doesn't go as planned at all. While it looked good on Samson's paper, it did not live up to its billing. But I want you to notice something. That our sin will derail our plans. They will. But our sin will never derail God's plans. Notice the text. It says in verse 4, That his mom and dad did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, At the time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. That is an important verse because here's the thing. We may think that we are making our own bed and that God is outside of it. I want you to know something abundantly clear of what I know of the sovereignty of God. God will use your obedience or your disobedience to accomplish his plans. And so if you think, I'm getting ahead of God, God didn't see this curveball coming, and God doesn't know what to do with this, and I've got God caught flat-footed, God knows exactly what he's going to do with it, the same thing he would have done with it had you been obedient. And so the only thing you've done is hurt yourself, you never have hurt God. God's like, we're moving full speed ahead. I can take your disobedience, I can take your obedience, and I'll use it to fulfill my plans. You will not thwart my plans with one iota. And so the only thing you're doing when you sin is hurting yourself. Samson is the only one who is downtrodden at the end of chapter 14. God is not. God's like, my plan's moving ahead. I've got a plan, and Samson's missing out on some blessing, and you and I are going to miss out on some blessing when we sin, but God says my plans and purposes will not be thwarted. So the question this morning as we stop and write the to be continued on this story, Samson did not obey God. Samson chose his flesh over his spiritual relationship with God. Samson chose selfishness over his Savior. Will you do the same? Or will you, because of the warning you've been given today, start to address some of these issues? Give them over to God. Seek his forgiveness. And allow the blessing and goodness of God to shower you in the days to come. Samson's making his own bed. The question is, how are you going to do it?
The answer will be seen in the days to come. We'll come back next week and we'll pick it up again. Father God, we thank you for your word. I know, Lord, this has been a long message. It's a lot in that one chapter. But Lord, I pray that you would allow us to glean from your word truths that will change and transform our lives. Lord, I pray that this would be a warning. A warning to the listener, a warning to the preacher that we can't play games with you. And Lord, when we do, only ruin and, and problems come. We only wreck our lives, Lord. We don't wreck your plans and your ways. So Lord, wisen us up. Let us use Samson's life as an example of how not to live so that we may honor you. Lord, there's a lot of Samson in each and every one of us. And so Lord, use Samson's life as an example of what disobedience looks like so that we will know what holiness ought to be. Thank you for your grace in Samson's life. Thank you for your grace in our life. That though we fail, you minister to us, you love on us, you give us other opportunities. Let us not take those for granted and let us take those and apply them to our lives so that we might honor you in the days to come. Now lead us forth from this place, Lord, as we fellowship with one another, as we go about our days, that in the decisions that are made, we will honor you in all of them. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.